Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 6th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our crime report. Naga Raha Thota, a board-certified anesthesiologist who works as a pain control specialist with an office in El Cajon, was arrested and charged with illegally distributing oxycodone and other highly addictive drugs. The criminal complaint said at least two young women received prescriptions for opioids without a legitimate medical purpose on numerous occasions in exchange for sex acts. The complaint also shows a pattern in which sexually explicit texts were exchanged by the doctor and the women, followed by prescriptions written for them by Dr. Thota. One victim said she met Thota when she was hospitalized for withdrawal symptoms for hydrocodone and alprazolam. Thota agreed to treat her, but documented that his treatment was for pain even though this victim did not suffer from any medical condition that caused chronic or ongoing pain. This victim also stated that Thota kept increasing the dosage. This victim, who was 20 years old when she met Thota, said she felt that if she did not submit to sexual acts with him, he would not have provided her with additional opioid prescriptions. After being exposed to greater dosage levels of opioids by Thota, the young woman started using heroin. According to officials, the DEA, about a dozen potential new victims have come forward following the arrest. Prosecutors also claim another woman threatened to take allegations of abuse to the DEA and Thota paid her money not to do so. And this is not his first run-in with authorities. In 2014, the California Medical Board accusation claimed that he committed gross negligence in his care and treatment of patients while prescribing opiates to them. In November 2015, Dr. Thoda entered into a stipulated settlement and disciplinary order with the medical board, which provided for the revocation of his license. However, the revocation was stayed and he was placed on several seven years probation with restrictions. He was therefore on probation when his current arrest was made. Under federal law, a medical doctor may not prescribe a controlled substance unless there is a legitimate medical purpose. Two doctors who each operated medical offices in Linwood have been arrested on federal drug charges that allege they issued prescriptions for narcotics and sedatives without a medical purpose. The arrest is the result of an operation conducted by the Torrance Police Department and the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office that targeted members and associates of the East Coast Crips criminal street gang. The two doctors, 75-year-old Sonny Oprah, who lives in Long Beach, and 64-year-old Edward Riggill, who lives in Ventura, surrendered to federal authorities and were released on bail. The criminal complaints charge both doctors with illegally prescribing addictive drugs. Oprah allegedly issued nearly 13,000 illegal prescriptions in just a one-year period, and Riggle issued more than 21,000 such prescriptions in three-year period between July 2011 and 2014. All of the prescribed drugs were at or near the maximum strength. 
The affidavit describes 12 undercover operations during which Oprah and Ridgill sold prescriptions in exchange for cash fees. In most instances, the doctor sold the prescriptions without ever examining the undercover officer or cooperating witnesses. A medical expert's independent review of the undercover recordings and seized patient files confirmed that there was no legitimate medical basis for the prescriptions. The expert said his actions are very alarming and the evidence reflects extreme departures from the standard of care. Federal authorities made cash seizures from both doctors and bank records showing that Bridgel deposited $500,000 in cash into his bank accounts in less than three years. The arrest of the doctors occurred jointly with a sweep that targeted the East Coast Crips street gang and what authorities called Operation Moneybags. The charges against gang members and their associates have not yet been unsealed. The Oprah and Regill case originated when the investigation into the East Coast Crips revealed evidence that the two served as a large-scale source of supply to gang members. An employee for a building remodeling company was sentenced to six months in county jail for cashing in disability checks under the false pretense of being unable to work. 53-year-old Angel Monzen, who lives in Santa Ana, pleaded guilty in February 2015 to one felony count of insurance fraud and two felony counts of making fraudulent statements. He has now been sentenced to 180 days in Orange County Jail and three years of probation. Monzen also paid over $25,000 in restitution. In April 2010, Monzen worked as a granite installer for Fermall Incorporated in Huntington Beach. He lost his balance while working and fell while carrying a large piece of granite. Monzen was placed on temporary total disability and received over $24,000 in benefits. He reported to doctors that he was unable to work and had limited physical abilities, but Monson secretly resumed work as a granite installer and collected an income from a new job while illegally continuing to accept disability benefits. His original employer reported to the insurance company that he had resumed working. Then, in 2013, Monson lied under oath about working. The California Department of Insurance began investigating the case after receiving surveillance footage confirming that he was working on manual labor projects. It was then discovered that he was paid over $54,000 working for a new business while illegally receiving and cashing disability checks. Sergius Apostolos Orloff is a seriously injured worker and is confined to a wheelchair. As a result of a work-related spinal cord injury, Orloff suffers from chronic back pain, anxiety disorder, and a personality disorder. He was awarded 100% permanent disability on his workers' compensation claim, but he also had an attitude when dealing with others and has a history of threatening physical harm to those involved in his case. In this current fourth criminal case, he was prosecuted again and convicted for threatening police officer David Kelly, who made contact with him while investigating a citizen's complaint that he had made threats of bodily harm. The investigation was triggered by his threats to a CVS pharmacy employee. 
he appealed this conviction. The Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court this month in the published case of People v. Sergius Apostolus Orloff. But this was not Orloff's first criminal case for making threats to those involved in his workers' compensation claim. Back in 2003, he suffered a misdemeanor conviction for making annoying or threatening phone calls to his neighbors. In 2008, he was again convicted of the same offense after he had placed several increasingly hostile phone calls to representatives of HealthQuest Home Care due to his dissatisfaction with their service. He was again placed on probation and ordered to serve 180 days in jail. He was on probation for less than one year when he committed the third offense, which involved his threats to workers' compensation judges in Oxnard who were involved in his case. He telephoned Judge Carrero's secretary and others that used and used profanity and threatened the judge and others. Appellant also said something to the effect that he was going to break Judge Carrero's legs. A few days later, the appellant left a message that Judge Carrero, Dolman, and David Brotman, another judge, were going to meet members of the Russian Mafia. In July of 2008, Orliff pleaded guilty to the third criminal case involving these workers' compensation judges. And facts of his prior misconduct in the third case, unrelated to the current prosecution, were allowed into evidence as heard by the jury in this, his fourth case. This fourth prosecution pertained to a 2014 complaint by Dennis Messino, who worked as a store manager for CVS Pharmacy. His store filled Orloff's prescriptions for pain medication. After several episodes of disruptive behavior, Messino told Orloff that he was no longer welcome at the store and his prescription would be transferred to any pharmacist that he wanted. Later, Messino received two telephone calls from Orloff. In the first call, Orloff said to expect something when you least expect it. About 90 minutes later, Messino received a second call. In this call, the claimant said, This is Dennis. How may I help you? Orloff replied, You're dead, and hung up. Officer David Kelly, who was investigating these calls, had prior police contacts with Orloff and was aware of his disability. During the officer's conversation, Orloff uttered racial epithets while responding to Kelly's comments, which concluded with yet another threat to the peace officer. Now Orloff appeals from the judgment entered after a jury had convicted him on this fourth case. The Court of Appeals sustained the fourth conviction in the case of People v. Orloff. The Court of Appeal explained its decision by saying, a person confined to a wheelchair is capable of making a criminal threat. Here the threats were directed to a peace officer and a pharmacy manager. Similar prior threats were directed to workers' compensation judges. While the court had compassion for a person confined to a wheelchair, pain and suffering does not give him a license to threaten people. The law does not countenance threats of bodily harm against citizens, peace officers, or judges. Threats against peace officers or judges are directed not only to the individual, but also to the public office that the individual occupies. This case now sets a precedent for proper conduct of an injured worker while working with claims, physicians, and others who are involved in administering the claim. 
And in medical news, a new study claims that some doctors may be milking their better insured patients. The recent study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine, and it suggests that more than $750 billion of the U.S. healthcare spending annually represents waste, including approximately $200 billion in over-treatment. Keep in mind that a person treating under the California workers' compensation system is a better insured patient as defined by this study since they do not have any policy limit and no deductible. The study examines what research calls low-value health care spending. They reviewed insurance claims which included nearly 1.5 million adults with commercial insurance. Just under 8% of these people had received low-value services, meaning the services provided little value to the patients given all the costs and alternatives. The most commonly received low-value services included imaging for nonspecific low back pain and imaging for uncomplicated headache. The greatest proportion of spending was for spinal injection for low back pain at $12.1 million. In a previous report published in the National Academies of Sciences, a study found that the U.S. spends more on health care than any other nation, yet, Despite this spending, health outcomes in the U.S. are considerably below those in other countries. Regionally, the southern, middle Atlantic, and mountain regions had greater proportionate low-value spending. Ideally, the California Workers' Compensation Utilization Review and Independent Medical Review process will screen for and refuse authorization for low-value care and current and future amendments to the medical treatment utilization schedule will continue to identify what is considered by evidence-based medicine to be low-valued care. The Workers' Compensation Research Institute published a new study which looks at 33 states, including California, which in total represents 87% of the workers' compensation benefits paid in the country. It found that hospital rates for outpatient surgery paid by workers' compensation vary significantly across states, with states that have fixed fee schedules having lower surgery costs for injured workers. Payments ranged from 69% below the study state median in New York to 142% above the study state median in Alabama. The variation in the differences between average workers' compensation payments and Medicare rates was even greater, reaching as low as 27% below Medicare in New York and as much as 430% above Medicare in Louisiana. Not unexpectedly, states with no workers' compensation fee schedules had higher hospital outpatient payments per episode compared with states with fixed amount fee schedules. Also, in non-fee scheduled states, workers' compensation paid between 166% and 378% more than Medicare for similar hospital outpatient services. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted drug formulary draft regulations, including a proposed list of preferred drugs on its online forum. The goal is to adopt an evidence-based drug formulary. 
Assembly Bill 1124 requires the adoption of an evidence-based workers' compensation drug formulary into the medical treatment utilization schedule by next July. The DWC intends to concurrently adopt updated MTUS clinical topic guidelines to align with the drug formulary. Their proposed updated guidelines are created by the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, known as ACOM, published by Reed Group Limited. The preferred drug list proposed in the draft regulations was created by the DWC in light of evidence-based drug recommendations in the guidelines. One of the proposed regulations seems to be a strong tool to limit unfettered dispensing of compound medications. Proposed section 9792.27.9 provides that compounded drugs must be authorized through prospective review prior to being dispensed. If required authorization through prospective review is not obtained prior to dispensing payment for the drug, payment may be denied. When it is necessary for medical reasons to prescribe or dispense a compounded drug instead of an FDA-approved drug, the physician must document the medical necessity in the patient's medical chart and in the doctor's first report of injury or progress report. The documentation must include the patient's specific factors that support the physician's determination that a compounded drug is medically necessary. And a new California Workers' Compensation Institute study used data from 1.2 million drug prescriptions dispensed to California injured workers in 2014 to model the impact of these new draft drug formulary provisions. The draft formulary list classifies drugs as either preferred or non-preferred. Preferred drugs would not have to be authorized through prospective review, while authorization by way of prospective review would be required before non-preferred drugs could be prescribed or dispensed. Not listed drugs also would require an authorization through prospective review prior to prescribing or dispensing. All opioids would be non-preferred, but the regulations would allow a limited first fill of seven Pacific opioids if prescribed or dispensed at an initial visit within seven days of the injury date. The WCIR study found that preferred drugs compromise to 26.6% of currently prescribed drugs and 22% of total drug spend. Non-preferred drugs make up 57% of the prescriptions and 53.1% of the drug spend. While not listed drugs made up 16.4% of prescriptions and 24.9% of the drug spend. The most prescribed drugs that would be subject to prior review include opioids and certain bulk chemicals found in compound drugs. The model also found that the first fill policy for the seven opioids would affect fewer than 5% of current prescriptions. Based on the preliminary analysis summarized in this report, the proposed formulary represents a significant step forward in achieving the legislative intent. The CWCI plans a follow-up analysis that will examine the proposed formulary's impact on system-wide utilization review and independent medical review expenses. 
And in other news, Woodland Hills insurer HealthNet Incorporated has been fined $340,000 by the Securities and Exchange Commission for developing a severance policy that prohibited employees from collecting whistleblower awards. The Dodd-Frank Act, enacted in 2010, amended the Securities and Exchange Act by adding whistleblower incentives and protections. The purpose of these provisions was to encourage whistleblowers to report possible securities law violations by providing financial incentives and various confidentiality agrees. But HealthNet used severance agreements that prohibited employees from leaving the company from filing an application for or accepting a whistleblower award from the SEC. Although the agreements noted that employees were not precluded from participating in a federal investigation, they did, however, waive their right to the monetary recovery typically provided to whistleblowers. Approximately 600 employees signed agreements that contained this language. The Securities and Exchange Commission accused HealthNet of violating SEC rules as a result of its use of this severance agreement. And HealthNet has now submitted an offer of settlement, which the SEC has decided to accept. It agreed to pay a civil monetary penalty in the amount of $340,000. HealthNet has also agreed that it will make reasonable efforts to contact former employees who signed the severance agreement and advise them that HealthNet does not prohibit former employees from seeking and or obtaining a whistleblower award. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.